My name is Ziad Abbas Shamrukh. I was born uh, and grew up in the Hesha refugee camp. My family uh, uprooted from two villages, actually. My dad is from Zakaria village, and my mom is from Jrash village. And uh, they were uprooted in 1948, and they came to the Hesha refugee camp. And since that time until now, my family is still living in the refugee camp. Um, I'm working with Middle East Children's Alliance, Mecca, in, based in Berkeley. And I am still part of my work. It's connected to, the, to the, our community in Palestine or other communities in uh, Syria, Lebanon, um, and in the Middle East in general. In 1987, I was, of course, I was in the Hish refugee camp. And when the Intifada was started in the beginning of December, it wasn't something new for us in the Hesha refugee camp because I remember that since I become like almost I was 15, 14, 15 years. This is part of our daily activities in the, the Hesha refugee camp. And here I'm speaking about late 70s. There are many incidents happened in our refugee camp since that period. And I can say it wasn't something new uh, for the people in our refugee camp because there are certain kind of measures the Israelis they took and they did in our refugee camp long time, even 10 years before the first intifada. For example, the curfew issue, almost we experienced that since they were, we were children and sometimes we spent long time in, in, in under curfew, sometimes two weeks, three weeks, and this is end of 70s, beginning of 80s, and until the first intifada started. The second thing that, the second uh, uh, measure that the Israel, they took, it was a closing the, all the entrances in uh, our refugee camp. And it was uh, in 1979. I remember that very well. When they blocked and sealed all the entrances by rocks and some entrances it was by concrete, blocking and wasn't possible for us to... Uh, cross from the camp to the main street. And here I want to describe for the people in the past that the Hesha camp, it, the location of the Hesha camp, it's on the main road between Jerusalem and Hebron. So everyone want to cross, coming from Jerusalem, cross Bethlehem, going to Hebron, need to pass in front. It's the only, the main road to Hebron. And there were a lot of activities in the camp where children and youth grew up like throwing stones at the Israeli military cars, and sometimes they were throwing stones at the Israeli uh, settlers' cars when they passed the settlements uh, around Hebron. So by closing these kind of entrances, they blocked the movement of the people to cross the, 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 the street. Uh, the second thing, the campaigns, the arrest campaigns, how many people they were experienced jails, and almost I can say most of the youth, um, our youth and children in the camp, they experienced the prison, some of them for one week, two weeks, one month, blah, blah, including me. I was a child. They took us as a children, and you, we were arrested. And at the same time, when you go to jail, you learn about new things, you meet other people, etc. Uh, so we were in, 19, in November, actually, before December. And uh, as usual, Israel is before certain kind of occasion, what they call it preventive uh, the, uh, security measures. They impose curfew, and sometimes they arrest people before certain kind of national occasion where the people, they take the street, protest, organize demonstration, 
etc. So in November we had two. In 1987, we had two uh, main occasions. The first one, it's Pilford Declaration. It's uh, November 2nd. So there were a curfew, and there were demonstrations. Even the people, they uh, they uh, break the curfew, and they go out to the street and the protest. And the second one, it was um, uh, November 29th. It's the International Solidarity Day with the Palestine, with Palestinian. So the people they have, we had our own occasion. And many people, they, the Israelis, they came to arrest many people in that period. They didn't find them in the houses. I know some, some friends, they were all the time prepared. Before any occasion, they prepared their bags to go to prison. They come take them, including my brother, actually. He used to do that. And later, I become the same. I was working as a journalist in that period. And it was the beginning for me to work as a journalist. At the same time, I'm part of the, I'm living in Dehesha refugee camp. So in December, I was in Dehesha, and in that period, Dehesha, actually, we had a military camp, the Israeli military camp in front of the, of the camp, where you have many military tents, even they have um, a piece of land where the helicopters, sometimes they are landed, they come to the, our area, and you have military patrols all the time, and moving inside the camp, around the camp, 24 hours. So in that period, I can say the spirit, how the people in the, in, the, in the refugee camp before the Antifada started, as I said, we had our own Antifada, but we have the community support to each other. Mm-hmm. For how they support each other sometimes. Even when you want to cross the street, just you check with the people. They are in the roof or in the windows. Do you know where are the soldiers, where you can pass? And usually this kind of military groups moving around the camp, they stop you, they search you, and sometimes they arrest you, and sometimes they beat you. Uh, it depends. And this is how the people, they were supporting each other. In that period, too, the people, when they build a house, you find two, two gates to the house. Or sometimes you can enter the house, but you, there is, you know most of the houses in the camp, they have a window open. Still, you can escape from the house, jump to other house. Or through the roof, you can jump from house to house to house. And this is what we call it, related to the intifada culture, our own intifada. The people, all the time, they're concerned that when, when youth from the camp, they are um, escaping from soldiers, they will have the chance to escape. If they enter the house, they know there is a window. They can escape from the other side of the house. And uh, this is the culture of how we were growing up. But at the same time, we were supporting. They were the community, take care of each other, support, distributing food, sharing uh, whatever you have, resources, etc. <clears throat> So when the Antifada started, it was like a car accident in, in Jabali refugee camp. And the reaction came immediately from other refugee camp, like Balata, and I remember, and Nablus. And they were, I think his name, Brahim Laklik, he was killed in that period, the second, after the, the, the seven people, they were killed in Jabalia. And it was like a surprise in the, in the way it's how the whole community reacting the first few days. So in our camp, it's a daily activities against the settlers, against the soldiers, where the people they were taking there. And I was working at the same time as a journalist, where I was reporting all the time. So the atmosphere it was for us before the first intifada, when they usually they impose curfew or something happened inside the camp, usually youth, and especially our age, targeted. No matter if you throw stones or not, you are targeted. As young, as youth, all the time the soldiers, they target you. The, this is like, usually we used to escape 
from the refugee camp. Where you go to Beit Jala, to Beit Lahem, to Beit Sahur, to Al Khadr, to the villages around Batir. I remember we used to go to sleep in Batir groups. Tens of youth go and the community there prepare the food for us until the curfew, until ended, we return back to the refugee camp. What happened with the first intifada, you see the other location, other villages, other towns, they be, are involved. Uh, the, the feelings, the good feelings we had when we, like when we used to leave the camp and go outside where it's more secure to be in Beit Jala or Beit Sahur or in Batir or Al Khadr, the other villages around us, now it's not there anymore because there are activities there. There are soldiers, they are moving around, and everyone is targeted, especially in our generation. And I can say in the first intifada, I was uh, just 25 years old <coughs> uh, in that period. So for us, the other good feeling is we are not alone now. We are not uh, just our refugee camp in the whole area involved in this national struggle. Now, almost every location. And we grew up with this. I can say I was a child, but later we grew up, and many people inside the camp, we become an expertise how to deal with the situation, how to organize, how to take care of each other in different levels, health issue, education, care for you, how the community. So we were like an expertise in the, in the whole area where other areas, they were approach us to learn and to ask for certain kind of advices and how to organize. So it was amazing uh, uh, feeling. At the same time, the Holy Spirit, you feel high to feel all your community involved in this issue. Mm -hmm. And of course, the number of the people increasing. I want to highlight a little bit here before the Antifada. In 1985, I said in 1979, they sealed all the entrances in the refugee camp. In 1985, they built the fence, the first part of the fence. Dehesha was known by the fence, the wall, or what you, they call it, the wall. So they had the fence. In the beginning of the first intifada, immediately they continued the whole fence to isolate the camp from the main road, Jerusalem, Hebron Road. In 21st, and this is, I remember this day very well. As a journalist, I was working as a journalist in the ground there. And this is like the first general strike in Palestine, where 1948 area, all the Palestinian community inside Israel, with West Bank and Gaza, they have the general strike. No one go to work, no one go to school, etc. And this is the first morning when we wake up in the Hesha refugee camp. It was very, very, very cold day. But suddenly we find part of the fence destroyed and fell down in the main street. So the Israeli army, they were, even they were there, even they have the military camp, but youth in the camp, they succeed to cut the fence and destroy part of the fence, not the whole fence. And uh, immediately the response of the Israelis, they were like, I remember the shooting at morning, just for nothing, they were shooting everywhere. They were very angry, very upset. At the same time, it was a curfew too, and they start building the fence again, but this time they made the fence for the two tracks. It was one track, a fence, later, and a fence with barbed wire, etc. They add another track to make it difficult to be destroyed and to make it the holes in the fence very thin, so the, the, the youth in the camp, when they use the slingshot, still they cannot throw the stones through the holes 
through the fence. This is our camp at that period. I remember it was, um, even our family, we were living like uh, our house. It was still very simple house and it wasn't easy to feel secure. So all the time you need to change houses where you sleep. And sometimes you change. Even we were working as a journalist, we were targeted and especially journalists. We were targeted where we use, you need to change the house and we need to go uh, um, <clears throat> to move from house to house. It depends how the soldiers, they are moving in, inside the camp and you can't sleep. You cannot have like eight hours sleeping unless you are far from the camp. All the time, two hours, three hours, they wake you up, you move to other house. And, and all the houses, I can say most of the houses was open for us where you can just relax or have some food or have a cigarette and move to other house. Ziad Abbas talking about uh, his experiences during the first intifada, um, specifically in Dehesha refugee camp in the Bethlehem area in the occupied West Bank. Um, Ziad, can you talk a little bit more about since Israel has uh, began its military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and the Golan? It has enacted series of policies aimed at separating the populations geographically, um, politically, um, uh, resource-wise. Can you talk a, a little bit more about the community as a whole coming together, um, whether they were in Gaza, where the Intifada started, in the West Bank, inside 48, um, present-day Israel? How did that community cohesion really uh, solidify and strengthen during during you know the first few weeks and months of the intifada i remember one of the stories actually this is the first few days in the intifada when a group of soldiers we were watching actually and we were hiding in the camp behind the window and we were watching they arrested a boy he's like 13 14 years old so immediately when someone arrested you find all these women jumping on the soldiers and they catch and they start fighting with the soldiers to release the boy. And it was a famous story actually in the camp. And this is like, they were like 12, 13 women surrounding the group of soldiers. They want to liberate, I say, the boy. And they stopped. And the officer, it seems he speaks Arabic very well. He starts speaking with the women. Later we find out what was the, the whole discussion. They released the boy <laughs> without big fight. And that soldiers, he asked, okay, you are everyone, f f uh, he told the women, everyone is uh, of you say, he's my son, he's my son, he's my son. I will release your boy if I find really who is the real mother, an honest way. And the woman, one of the women told him, you want the honest way? His mother is not here. And this is show you like how immediately everyone in the camp, there's certain kind of rule. And of course, they released the boy. And there were many stories like this. You, there is certain kind of security inside the camp, how the people, they support each other. They released the boy. In any way, the soldiers, they know it will be a massacre if they will not release the boy. This is, these women will never leave it. And it was like this, many stories like this inside the camp. This is, I can say, the community by... Living all this period, I can say it was since 1977-78 until the beginning of the Antifada, the accumulation of this experience, and you have a generation they grew up. And I remember in 85-86 when they started the huge campaign for administrative detention. 
some of our colleagues and you know some of them actually they were arrested they were the youngest political prisoners they were 16 years 15 16 years old the youngest administrative detainees in that period inside jail and this is before the first intifada so this community later on it's become like learning we learned a lot and i can say in balata refugee camp they had almost the same experience balata it was like in the north of west bank they were really really very active the same almost like the hesha you have jalazon near amari these are the location i can mention you have jabalia in gaza they were very known we have many refugee camps we have 19 refugee camps in west bank and you have eight refugee camps in gaza but there were certain locations in these refugee camps, they have the experience. And this is how the people, they were learned. And to add to that, they were the universities, they were very active. Bethlehem University, Birzeit University, Hebron University, Gaza, and the same. And the people, they were easy movement. You still can travel, you can go to Ramallah, you can go to Nablus. You still can go, even you can, there is a way, there were no walls, no fences, you can cross the city. Sometimes you walk from through the mountains, reach other villages, and you get there, you are welcomed, the people, they open their house. And it was easy, I can say, easy movement, not like right now, we are isolated totally. The Israel, they try to isolate, but people all the time, they find their own way to reach these kind of areas. So these kind of experiences in the refugee camps, I can say, later on it was you know, like spread out to different uh, communities and the people they catch up the momentum that the first intifada created in the first two three weeks and they can say here the momentum through the way how the people they organized there is a time they were a leaflet coming by the unified leadership and this is something actually i can say achieved in the palestinian history since the beginning since 60s first what achieved the palestinian revolution was establishing BLO but what happened after that big achievement having the unified leadership for the, the first intifada when they were like example the leaflets distributed in the first uh, intifada it's like the, the, the I call it the system with timing mm -hmm. everyone is following and whatever you have in the leaflet people they go write it in the walls so the people they can't see the leaflets they can read in the walls tomorrow or this data strike from this hour to this hour so the walls in the refugee camps in the cities in the village became the newspaper the magazine where they can read and this is other element can organize the people one of the things like inspired me and even when i was working as a field in the beginning and i was working with tvs in that period and we were following like for example we had, you have the general strike, you have it every day, uh, all the day it's closed. Only one pharmacy, they keep it open for the people they need medicine or something. And you have the daily, daily uh, uh, strike, start for, for example, 12 o'clock. There is a sound, I still have it in my ears. When you go five minutes before 12, you hear all these big doors of the shops that, the owners of these shops, they start closing their doors coming. And you see the whole system, the whole street, you see these doors and the sound of the doors. We, it's, we don't have a switch like you here in that period. It's big keys, very loud and heavy doors from middle. And you can hear that closing. 
the first few days after the first leaflet uh, of uh, of the leadership, the Israel, they tried to keep the door open. You find the owner of the ship, no, I want to close the shop. Soldiers try to keep the shop open and be uh, the owner. Yeah, the, uh, this is his resource to make money, but he want to close. This is how much it was, the commitment. The general strike, it's like general strike and the daily strike. This is like the main organizer uh, for the people. And after that, they close. And after that, you have, and sometimes the clashes, like the youth take the street at 12 o'clock after everyone buy what they need, blah. They, you find it in different streets in Bethlehem. For me, as one as a journalist, I didn't have a car in that period, my, me, but we were like, every few journalists, we were, we were following only ambulances. Wherever you see the ambulance, you follow them. You hear bullets, you follow from which part, and we try to go report, etc. And it's, uh, uh, the community itself at the same time become a journalist. I was working in Bethlehem Press Conference, uh, Bethlehem Press uh, Office, and every morning, I don't need to go to the, these villages to collect the news. The people, they come immediately. Tonight they came, they did this, 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 they arrested these people. They made our job very easy. So to, up, to update the news, you have it all the time. The community approach the media. They tell the people what's going on. And you send the, 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 to the newspaper, to the radios, etc. We didn't have big radios in that period. We didn't have a CN radio. But sometimes even we send it including the Israeli media because we were not allowed to have it because still we are in that period. The Israelis, they were censoring every letter, every word in our newspapers. And some news, it, the censorship, the military censorship, sometimes they cancel the news. What we used to do, send the news to the Israeli media, they don't have censorship like us. They publish it. After that, the Palestinians, they are allowed to translate it. So the Israeli journals, they were very privileged. They take the news in easy way when they, while they are, because we want this news to be known, the people to know, and some our news, it, we're getting it late. But anyway, to speak about journalism under the first intifada, needs separate. <laughs> but the community in that period, I can say, they were playing different kind of rules. People, they start organizing committees. It depends how much, like the women committee, the health committee, education committee, uh, uh, national committee, even internal problems, you don't need to go to the Israeli police. Even you don't need the police in West Bank, they were most of them Palestinian, but the high officers, they are Israelis. You don't go to them. You go to the national committee, they solve, solve the problems. I know many stories in my camp, people sometimes, families, they have internal problems. It's solved. No need to go. And even sometimes it's very, very tough issues, like uh, problems happen. The community solve it. At the same time, in Kerview, you can see, I remember many times late night when, for example, trucks arrive from Golan Heights, coming trucks full of apples supporting the community, or other trucks coming from Nazareth, or from even other parts of West Bank, because the location inside the camp or other towns, villages under Kerview, and there were groups, their task only to distribute this food to the houses. And of course, here you have all the data about the refugee camp, how many ch children and which families they need milk, for example. You start distribute that and from house to house to get this food. And sometimes you have a line of houses connected, like you have 60, 
families connected in one house just you give the milk for the first house you tell them this is the this family and you know the milk moving from house to house to house until they get it to the uh, this family with children this kind of i can say it it's spontaneous it's real it's not fake it's organizing everyone feel the contribution everyone uh, have high spirit helped organizing the community there are many elements uh, of that that are obviously still at work uh, in in Palestinian communities especially in the refugee camps um, but in terms of like national political resistance and and cohe- you know and, and really a, a collective leadership um, that seems to have been uh, disappeared uh, after Oslo can you talk about what what elements of, of, of that kind of community spirit remain today, 30 years after the first intifada, and why the other elements have, have been broken? I would say in the first intifada, everything is spontaneous, everything is rooted, everything is organized with communities in the ground. You have your leadership living among the people. Like you have the unified leadership leading the struggle in West Bank and Gaza, even 1948. You have in each location, they were leadership. They know what's going on in their communities. And there were a program, general program for everyone. And there are a program for every area. And there are schedule and plans for each location. In Bethlehem area, you have the villages. Each village, they have their own. So the people, they were organized in this way. The second thing is, when I say rooted, it's a grassroots communities and i can say the first intifada that was amazing the first maybe 16 15 16 we had unified leadership uh, leaflet number one leaflet number two leaflet number and i remember leaflet number nine and ten ten actually this is when i went to jail as a journalist because when the palestinian policemen working with israelis they resigned because they were a call for them to resign and they started blaming. I was working a journalist so the police they started bringing first they come to us to bring a copy of their resignation second they go to submit and later on they came they invaded our office and they took us to jail but these kind of leaflet is coming from the ground you feel it is because we were tired from our leadership all the respect I'm not here coming to undermine Palestinian leadership in general but it's I can say criticism to criticize, especially after what happened in Beirut in 1982, Palestinian leadership would draw from Lebanon, retain back, internal problems happened between Palestinian, even inside some factions itself. And later on, the people having their own leadership well respected from their own communities. They have it with them, everything went well. And here, to be honest and clear, because I say rooted, you find the workers, they are part of this leadership. You find the students part of this leadership. You have the women, mostly they are part of leadership. You have the simple people part of this leadership. Their voice is heard. They are part of this community. It was, it was very strong. Later on, when BLO from Tunisia, they start involving, writing the unified leadership from there. This is where we start losing a little bit the momentum inside in the Palestinian first intifada. And here it's related to the class issue too. 
I remember we were like as a refugee growing up in the refugee camp and here in the past I use like to hide that not to speak about it recently I speak about it we have our own internal racism and discrimination as a refugee you feel you are um, the other people living around you and it's everywhere I can say people living in villages people living in cities they don't you as a refugee you are not welcomed they look sometimes down at you as because you are a refugee and they put you in certain kind of a category i'm not speaking about everyone certain communities but you can feel it as a refugee you can live it with feel it uh, to be honest with you and i will share this story in 1979 i finished my preparatory school in the Hesha refugee camp and we are going to the secondary school and as a child and when i grew up it was my dream and like many my generation the camp you are waiting for this moment where you will line up in the street every morning with all these beautiful girls and you ride the bus with them going to Bethlehem school so when we finished our breakfast school we were shocked shocked actually when we find out that the schools in Bethlehem and Beit Sahur, Beit Jala, they don't want the student from refugee camp to come to their school because they don't want our they don't want these kind of activities to be spread in the schools. It doesn't mean these schools wasn't active. They were active. They were people active from Beit Jala, Beit Sahur. But they were, I can say, not that many people. But from the camp, we were very active. And here I'm accurate about that. I'm not just made it up. We lived that period very well. So later on, what we say, they decided to deport us. Instead to go to Bethlehem, they deported us to Urtas village. And that period, even Urtas, you cannot reach every house in Urtas by car. The cars reach certain point and they stuck there. Later, the people, even when they do building, they use the uh, dungis and the horses and to put the building materials in there to take them. So we need to cross the camp, cross a hill, go down to the valley to go to school. So we were shut down, our dream shut. And we call it deportation. They deported our students instead to go to Bethlehem, Beit Jala, Beit Sahur. And we went back, actually back to the uh, uh, to schools in Urtaz village. And of course, this the whole education system is controlled by the Israelis in that period. They were certain kind of, I can say, discrimination against. And despite the fact, the national activists in Bethlehem, they loved the camp and they considered themselves part of the camp. But the majority, I can say, they were not welcomed. I remember even from from certain towns, I don't want to say the names actually, ah, these children and these youth coming from the refugee camp, escaping from the camp, we don't want them here. But in the first intifada, no. People, they open their houses in Beit Jala, Beit Laham, Beit Sahur, in all the villages, they open their houses to you and they welcome you and they become part of it and they... The community come together and here the class issue i remember even the elite in our area i remember that period the elite didn't play a big role in the struggle before the first intifada they care about their own resources and some of them even they were privileged they have certain kind of privilege from the israeli occupation because they have businesses blah blah with the first intifada no they become under this following the unified leadership and following where you are welcomed in these rich houses too, where you can all go and they invite you to have a shower, have a nice meal. 
And uh, I experienced this. I went to many houses like this, and if there are they have a problems, they come to the people like inside. So you, I'm not saying the class melted, but at least the gap between the class and the whole area, the privileged people, the people with money, and the people in the ground, the gap minimized. It's not melted totally, minimized. Later on, would be all involved. And here, I'm here. Uh, uh, honest about that this is where you feel the people they put this in the leaflets they are they don't know exactly what's going on in the ground you feel you start feeling it for the people like I can say when you think about it try to compare with the first leaflets and the new leaflet there's something behind and this is where we start losing later on Oslo came and divided the community. During the Intifada, the, 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 the gaps between classes, it's minimized. Oslo came and actually created a new division. It created Oslo class, and you have the rest of the Palestinian community, another class, they had no benefits from Oslo agreement. When I say Oslo class, this is the class got all their benefit. And by the way, these class, uh, this classes doesn't mean they are just from cities. No, they were people from refugee camps. Even people they participated in the first intifada in very strong way. They were political prisoners. They were journalists. They were lawyers. They were intellectuals, professors, uh, doctors. They got their own benefit from this class and they start defending the class more than they defend the Palestinian national struggle. And this kind of gap until now we have it. Actually, this gap is still growing up. It's growing up sometimes between locations. You have in my refugee camp, for example, the Hesha camp, it's not the same like before. For example, you have this class inside the camp connected to Oslo. They have their own benefits from Oslo and you have the rest of the community which they have nothing and they still they are the fuel of Palestinian struggle <clears throat> the same the locations you see uh, the geographic division Gaza which the majority of the people they are going through hard time and still you have the people in Ramallah and connected to the Palestinian Authority they still get the benefit of the Oslo class whatever we achieved in the first Intifada the second Intifada they didn't carry this because the, first, the second intifada started as popular but later on hijacked by the Palestinian Authority. Like the first intifada started spontaneous, grassrooted, not just grassrooted, it was really rooted among the communities and was hijacked later by the Palestinian leadership and led to Oslo Madrid negotiation and after that Oslo agreement. Second intifada started popular. But later, immediately, actually, didn't take long time. And it was led by the Palestinian Authority. So we didn't accomplish that much. And, of course, uh, these kind of experience, still the first intifada, the sad part, the new generation, they were to grow up after the first intifada. They didn't get the lessons enough from the first intifada. I can see some locations they got, it depends how the community they are working, certain villages, towns, and you can see some people like in certain villages threatened by the wall, confiscation lands, how they organize. But I want to say one thing like it was something, I don't want to be that much like looking at the picture, it's very dark and it's not, 
the last uh, experience in Jerusalem when they tried to impose this kind of electronic gates, how the, the community in, in East Jerusalem respond to that and they got the support. First, they got the support from each other and this is the main thing. And they challenged the Israeli government and they pushed them to the corner and this is show up. I can say the spirit of the first intifada came very strong, still impact, contribute to that. The experience of the first intifada is still there, but it was never used. I know some university, local universities, they had their own researches, they had certain kind of curriculums, but wasn't enough to make it as a lifestyle. The first intifada was a lifestyle. Even if the one, the, it was like shaped the whole community, the social life, the norms, everything. Like someone want to get married, you don't need to spend a lot of money in gold or buying $500 you can get married just to prepare a bedroom and you'll have all the support from the community around you. Oslo came divided the people. Israel, of course, their plan is to divide the Palestinian people in different kind of categories. Uh, look at uh, geographic locations and with the privilege here, less privilege here, there. Second, as a class issue where the people, they have their own benefit and their interest now coming together with the Israeli interest to protect the privilege they have. But the majority of the community, they have nothing. Ziad, because you're a journalist and because you were working as a journalist uh, during the first intifada, I want to um, ask you about the way that the first intifada was perceived in in the, the Western world and, and around the world, for that matter. When we think of the first intifada, we think of the images of uh, Israeli soldiers um, beating and breaking the, the arms um, during the, what was called the breaking the bones policy. Yeah. Tanks and, and kids throwing stones at tanks. Um, can you talk about the imagery uh, and, and the perceptions of the first intifada and um, how, how it was received by the outside world? I, I, I think the first intifada was, um, because it was started spontaneous, in a spontaneous way, and everyone from Palestinian community, they find their own way to contribute to the intifada, no matter who you are, which class you are, which background, which education, which certificate, everyone find their own way. But they were, our focus is to reach the world. We feel like after 1982 and what happened to the Palestinian uh, leadership in Beirut and we as Palestinian community, you see our your land is shrinking, your water resources, the oppression is really very high and shutting you down. And the Israeli policy, like the racism, the discrimination, all these kind of policies, actually the administrative detention, the prisoners, the way how the Israelis are treating the Palestinian people, I can say it less than an animal, how they treat dogs in Tel Aviv and in different locations. This thing, it's came like to bring, first to bring the community together, where we can support each other, cheer together, plan together as a community coming together. Second, to approach the world, hey, we feel isolated, we feel ignored, we feel our rights actually almost illuminated. Israel tried to illuminate with all this kind of support coming from Europe and USA to the Israeli government. So the Palestinian did focus on this popular. People didn't use weapons in that period. The only weapon that the people they used, actually weapons they used, it was the stones, the slingshot, and organizing. 
These are the, the main three weapons that it was used in the first intifada. And organ part of the organizing is how to reach the media, how to reach the world. Because we still believe that the international public opinion is still important. And we try to learn how much the international uh, public opinion played uh, to support other people, especially the South African people. And still, the, the, that period, still the boycott against the apartheid system in South Africa playing a big role in that. And I can say, our our leadership, even the field leadership in the, among the communities, they were well educated, they are aware, they know about other people's experiences. So the image of the first intifada, we try to show it to the people. This is the brutality of this colonial system. It's coming in different kind of ways. It's not just military orders everywhere. It's not just checkpoints. It's not just settlement. It's interfering in every daily needs of the Palestinian people. And to show that through people organizing, taking the streets, they protest. And the, the, the only thing they use is the stones and the slingshot. And in the other hand, the Israeli occupation, they are using helicopters, they are using tanks, military jeep, automatic weapons, and not just different kind of tear gas and all this kind of uh, guide of, uh, I, I call it like, even including the inter uh, legal uh, bullets like dum-dum, what we call it, dum-dum bullets, which many people, many people from my camp, they were killed by dum-dum. So I can say with that, the image started changing. I remember 1980, we started December uh, 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 87, and in 1988, we really start having these kind of delegations coming to Palestine. And here, I will give a credit to Europe more than USA. Europe, it was very close and sending these kind of groups. I remember in that period, the Italian, they were really very active. And this is when they start organizing. I remember hand to hand, like a, they want to build a bracelet of a human people around Jerusalem to make a bracelet. And how the Israelites, they were, uh, 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 how these kind of people came in solidarity to support the Palestinian people and uh, uh, the ground there, they were attacked by the Israelis. Uh, they were many, many of them, they were injured and shot actually uh, in that period. And this has actually changed the image, like watching I can say the photos. Uh, me, I used I used to have a camera in that period, and the camera it's like the huge thing I used to carry it. And with especially the Israelis when they impose curfew or they announce this area it's a military zone, so the international journalists they can't come. Even the Israeli journalists they can't come unless they are coming with the Israeli army, like the Israeli TV or Israeli radio. And usually they report the opposite how they present the Palestinian. But I believe in that period, the Palestinian, they were, the Antifada presented the Palestinian different way. The Palestinian show that these people, they are the resilient of this community, uh, the Palestinian people, it show up through the photos, how these Palestinian youth, children, community, women, all of them coming together to challenge the Israeli colonial system. And build up, like the community, despite the Zionist, propaganda and the Israeli propaganda showing the Palestinian people as a terrorist or they are like and they undermined who we are as Palestinian but later the Palestinian image come the nature of the Palestinian any footage you will take it like in the streets it was enough to show the world this is who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed and this has changed the image the image a lot 
And later on, we realized how much solidarity like we start receiving from all over. And for me as a journalist, I was working like all the time, we were working with international TVs, international journalists to go around. This is why we were arrested. That's why they were arresting us, just to throw accusation on us. Just because we were journalists, we can report from areas that the international journalists, they can for you as American, you cannot enter this area. But me, I'm a Palestinian. I can enter this area. We go inside, we film, we take the photos, we interview people, and we give it to the international. This is, I remember in, in, in Nakab, uh, Ansar Three prison, in the Nakab desert, we, at a certain period, we were over like 60 journalists inside jail. 60 journalists. Like the press corps in the jail. Yeah, inside jail. We were like, even we had, uh, in that period, we were learning, of course, we had like our own radio station. Radio, I say, just, you make like, announce in the tent, like the radio. <laughs> this is the program. You feel yourself, you are behind the mic. Of course, no radio in the yeah. prison. But where you continue your work and we try to learn from each other. Everyone was targeted, like, in that period. And I can say, there were certain kind of wake-up. Israel's image, it's changed. And Israel, of course, they use this kind of policy. Sometimes the images you have, it can cost you your life as a journalist. The breaking bones footages, which until now, it's documented to show how these Israeli soldiers treat Palestinian youth. Or these kind of children standing in front of the, the tanks. Or, for example, these, I, I call it the footages, how these uh, youth in East Jerusalem attacked by sticks on their head. If there was no camera, no one will know about it. But my question is, the differences between that period until now. Israel, they were targeting journalists, targeting cameras. They look at the camera, one of the main, uh, the main enemy for them. Right now, Israel, they do a lot of things in front of the TV and they don't feel shy because still... In the United States, until now, they report the same. There were some changes a little bit, but still, it's the same area. And Israel, they don't care now more and more about the international public opinion. They don't care about the media image, because this kind of media image now, it's generalized. What Israel did, actually, through all this kind of experience, generalized, make it normal, this kind of footages. In the first intifada, it wasn't normal. Anyone watch this? Even some Israelis, actually, they were got very angry, and some of them actually left Israel because certain kind of images happened in the first intifada. I'm not speaking about many, many. Some, few, I know some people, they already left Israel because this kind of images. But now Israel, they do that. They make it normal. And right now you see it almost in many other locations. This is the sad part. Like you see this kind of images and happening by not just by the Israelis. These kind of images like happened by even other regimes against their own people. And it happens and become like normal. And the reaction of the people toward these kind of images, it's, uh, it's not that strong reaction to make it difficult for them to do it again. Actually make it normal so they can continue to do it. Finally, Ziad, um, you were in your mid-20s during the first intifada. Uh, now you're in your mid-50s. Yeah. Um, you're an old man. Um, <laughs> what to you are the lessons that you learned during the first intifada that, that are still with you 30 years later? I agree with you that I am an old man. Sometimes I deal with myself as I am expired. 
But first of all, I am so lucky to be when I was young, I can say even before I was like 17, 18, 20. But in the first intifada, because the number of the death of the people around you, your neighbors, your friends, they were shot and killed, even including journalists. Your you know, like relatives inside, like my cousin, he was shot and killed in 1988, in May 1st, actually, 1988. He was 18 years old. And I have other relatives, they were injured and shot, disabled people, etc. I, I never thought I would be 40 years old. I never planned my life, actually, to be 30 years old or 40 years old. And I say, speak about this, not me, because I am, actually most of the Palestinian people, it's not easy to plan the future. And that period in the first intifada, death surrounding us. And wherever you go, you find death in front of you. Death is related with any Israeli settler, settlement, military jeep, checkpoint, uh, sometimes death coming from different kind of disease can hit you, you are not allowed to go to the hospital. Or children, they were died, women died before they get to the hospital. Pregnant women, they gave birth in, in the checkpoint. This is what I call it death. So to be now 53 years old, I am so, so lucky and privileged. Actually, my, uh, my thoughts, I have extra years now, more than my thoughts, what I, I, I lived, because we never thought. And just we were working simple people. We had our own cameras or reporting, not because you are doing something dangerous. And most of the Palestinian people in that period, you don't know who's next. I will share this story. In, in, uh, uh, in April, and this story actually repeated itself two times, in the first intifada, second intifada. In April, we had three people, they were killed in the camp, every day one person. April 15th, April 16th, April 18th, 1988. Because the first day we had a funeral for one boy, the second day another boy killed, we had the funeral, the third day. So what, when I was working as a journalist and tried to report sometimes documents with my simple camera and sometimes right, the first day, like you see all the women supporting the mother. The second day, the second boy killed. You find the same women, including the mother. She lost her son the day before. She's coming to the mother. And I remember, I will never forget this image, that in the third day, the mothers of the two martyrs, they were killed two days and one one day before. With other women, they are supporting the woman, the mother of the third day. And the women, you can, they were certain kind of silent moments. Other women looking, who's next? The same happened in the first intifada, second intifada, actually, in 2001, when we had three people. And I remember Mahmoud al-Mughrabi, he's one of the people who was killed. He participated digging the, because we had a new cemetery behind the camp. So he was digging the, the grave. Uh, uh, for uh, uh, for one of the, the, the of the boys, he was killed, and they they digging another grave in case something will happen. The second one, he was his grave, and the third day there were some people like killed. And the mothers, you look at them, the same. And this is the journey of mothers. I can say, who's next? Looking to each other, who's next? And this is something like all the time you grew up new, and you see this kind of spirit. We had death. No one liked death. 
يعني we will not accept we love the life we struggle because we love the life and when you have death surrounding you it's something it's a huge challenge and I say despite the fact we are surrounding by death tools uh, controlled by the Israeli occupation but we are still choosing the life to live try to find a way these kind even tiny hope where you can still live in, 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 in uh, dignity at the same time look toward the life to have a good life uh, me personally I learned I will not be the person who I am without the first experience I will not be the, the experience we went through how the communities they can really challenge and come together support each other we were laughing we were playing cards we were we had sitting down like of really really amazing moment during the first intifada where you feel whatever will happen to you you feel you have you are very proud very high, I mean, like your spirit very very uh, uplifted by your own community and by your rejected oppression and here right now it's the way how we are connected all the time we try all the time in order to change for any movement to survive and to do the changes to achieve the goals you need to create the community and this is the sad part we still have individualism attacking this this is one of the main lessons for us as a seen as communities and through our work actually i can say all the time we focused on the community needs because this is how you can keep community and it's sad but we are far from Palestine but still the Palestinian spirit is here like it's have it, you have it um, I can say I learned a lot despite of the one of the things I can say like when I was young all the time I say it I learned in my school that Columbus discovered America I can say when I went to prison the first time as a child I learned that Columbus did not discover America. <laughs> they were people living in America. And I can say with this kind of experiences, no matter where you will be, all the time, the community, building the community, it's the main, uh, should be the main task. This is how the people, they can get together and uh, develop their struggle and protect themselves and survive. The best thing that we ever, like, I learned it from my mom or we learned it from the catastrophe generation the survival issue how to survive no matter where you will be which kind of resources you have and how to build the community around you with the people around you uh, this community rooted and loyal to each other this is make you survive and this is wherever you go this is something I can say the first intifada it was uh, very productive uh, like in to create to support any like and make the momentum strong this kind of communities coming together and building this kind of connect strong connection with each other it was it was a huge as I told you you are in the Hesha refugee camp in curfew maybe sometime we had it like for 40 days but still you eat apples from Golan Heights you get the milk from Nasrath Sometimes you get the, the milk for children from Nazareth. You get the uh, beans from Hebron. You have, this is the who's our community. I make it like in a very simple way. Even you are in care of you, still these things coming together. It's, it's a survival issue. 
at the same time with the struggle this is how the community they take care of each other and this is how they carry their struggle and move forward to achieve their rights I can say that Israelis they won many rounds since Oslo until now the only thing we the Palestinian we still winning I can say it's winning uh, our um, <clears throat> our uh, community and our power inside ourselves the Israelis they couldn't break this down can illuminate it a little not illuminate reduce it a little bit but never uprooted and it still exists in every um, uh, every Palestinian everywhere I can say no matter where you live in Chile or in Lebanon or in USA or inside the refugee camps in Balata or Jabalia or uh, the Hesha refugee camp this kind of I call it feelings and connected to your dignity it's very strong I don't think so that as well as they succeed to break it down and this is something what we learned it through our struggle before the first intifada became very strong in the first intifada and until now it's it's like a plant it's like a seed it's growing up uh, inside uh, uh, inside ourselves the other thing I can say we are so so lucky and here I give a credit not give a credit actually they earn it our women our women they were amazing and we saw in the first intifada how much they played big roles and everything and we are, the sad part is still our leadership or Palestinian leadership they don't consider this very well the women they played in the before I, I, I say that in in my refugee camp women they were playing big role in the Palestinian struggle they are like unknown soldier hidden but they are carrying a lot of struggle I saw that with my sisters i saw that with my sisters-in-law i saw that with my aunts cousins i saw that with every woman inside in my refugee camp i say my refugee camp my refugee camp it was my earth the whole earth for me this is where i grew up usually we used to think that the borders of the camp the end of the earth but later on you see the whole when you grow up and start going you see the role of the women inside the first intifada and this is need special chapter where women they were they led a lot and contributed to our struggle and they were not justified even in the in the future to be acknowledged and recognized but they carried a lot on the Palestinian struggle the, the our women not just the mothers of the martyrs not just the sisters of the martyrs not just the wives of the martyrs the mothers and the sisters and of the political prisoners and the mothers and the sisters of everyone not because they are sister of because they have their own social struggle and they have their own political struggle related struggling against the colonial system and these women they carried a lot in the second intifada women they did almost they were marginalized totally actually the whole popular struggle in the second intifada because the Russian authority but women played big 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 role and they never uh, got the credit they deserve for this uh, first inti- before the first intifada and second and until now Palestinian women they are playing big big role to keep this kind of power inside every Palestinian I believe they are the main base for that Ziad Abbas, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you.